We're going to be in Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Love is one of the key themes of the entire Bible. You could even say in the midst of many, many things that the Bible is, it is also a love story. I want to go through this theme of love this morning. As Richard said, this fourth candle of Advent represents the key theme of love, that as we look back to the first coming of Jesus, there was something about that that embodied the love of God for his people, for his world. And as we look forward to the second Advent or the second coming of Jesus, we look forward to a fulfillment, a filling up of that love as well. Um, I want to begin this morning kind of telling you what love is. As I think love is one of those words that, I mean, I've heard it described as the feeling that you feel when you feel a feeling you never felt before, which is barely helpful. I think that's talking about a kind of romantic love that you, like, you have a crush on somebody or you think they're absolutely adorable or they make your heart flutter or feel a certain thing. And that's, that's a form of love. I think C.S. Lewis actually did a tremendous job in his book, The Four Loves, of looking at the biblical words for love. So you're, lo- you're looking back at Hebrew and Greek words and basically saying, what are the different kinds of ways that that word is used? And again, he gave four of them. It's not that these are the right four or the only four, but the four basic types of love. Number one is affection. It's a Bible word, storge. And this is the kind of love that a mother has for her child, the kind of love that a child has for his or her mother. It's just that very natural, familiar love. The second word that he used is the friendship kind of love. Philia, like Philadelphia, you've heard, is the city of brotherly love. And this is more of a, you know, as your friends, you have a kinship. You have a bond over shared interests usually, or a shared vision of something, or a shared hobby, or something like that. And it doesn't mean that you don't genuinely care about each other, but there's this overlap in your interests, in something you have in common that you, you bond over. And it's not the kind of love where you're staring at each other face to face. It's more of the, lo- the love that you're sitting side by side or working together on the same project. The third kind of love that Lewis defines is romantic love. This is the word eros. It's, it's a passionate kind of love. It's, this is the kind of love that involves sexual love or the use of your body often in loving another person. That's the romantic love. And then finally, he says the final form is charity, the biblical word agape, which many of you have heard that word. But it, the agape kind of love, the charity kind of love, is an utterly selfless or self-giving love that is simply designed to seek the good, the benefit of someone else, often at your own expense. Well, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about how I let off by saying the Bible is a love story. 
And we can go through the drama of Scripture, and we often say this here. So you have a four-act play. If you want to understand the Bible, it's creation, fall, redemption, final restoration. And just show you real quick how that is, amongst other things, a love story. And actually, let me back up one step prior to creation, because I think it's often assumed, and I've even heard it said, God created humankind, and even people that agree that God created humanity, but they would say, you know, he created it out of some sort of deficit. Like, he didn't have someone to love, and he didn't have someone to love him in return or admire him. And a very cynical form of this is he wanted to create beings who would serve him and be subservient to him. But the truth is, eternally, our God, the Christian God that we worship, is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Jews would say way back in the Old Covenant, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, one God, but eternally existing in these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So God at no point in time was ever alone in the sense that we think of aloneness. As Tim Keller would say, there was this kind of divine dance going on for eternity. And in fact, humanity and the rest of creation was created, was made as an overflow of that love, spilling over into a new creation, an additional creation beyond just like angelic beings, spirit beings, to make all that is. 1 John 4 says, God is love. God is eternally love. God is perfectly love. The Father is is that perfect embodiment. Whether you had a really, really good father or whether you have father issues, you struggle with a father who maybe wasn't there for you, the heavenly father is the perfect father love. Jesus is kind of the physical manifestation of that love. That's what we're celebrating at Advent. And then the spirit, you know, the Bible says the fruit of the spirit is love. So that's all before creation. And that has tremendous implications for our lives. If this is true, that God is eternally existing as perfect love, as a community of love, you could even say. For one thing, it means love is eternal. It is not a created or broken part of this creation. It's always been and it always will be. And as sure as God will continue to exist forever, there will always be love. But I think importantly, it also means that God is the author of love. God is the exemplar of love. If we're trying to understand really what is love and how do we show that back to him and how do we show that to one another, we don't really have the authority or right to define for ourselves, well, I believe this is love or loving. We look at God who has eternally authored love and exemplified love and say, you teach us what love is. You teach us how to love. Well, that brings us to act one. And in creation, we see that God created everything including humanity in particular, as an overflow of that love. That's what I just said. So at the very beginning of time, as we understand it, like you look at Genesis 1 and the way it's retold in Genesis 2, that creation is a spilling over of God's love, as I said, particularly into humankind. And that means we were made to know his love. We were made to experience his love. We were made to reflect his love, both back to him and to one another. But in Act 2, of course, which is the fall, we understand, I think we, we all intuit this, we all see this, we experience this maybe on a daily basis, that sin ruins our love for God and others. And you think there are many ways that the Bible describes sin. One of my favorite metaphors is just as simple as missing the mark. 
one of the Hebrew words means just missing the mark. Like there's a target that God has set for your life, a moral standard. And as some of us even maybe think of aiming at that standard, we all miss the mark. We fall short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans. Sin is described as a rebellion against the standard that God has set. But the way I want you to think of sin this morning is every sin is a failure to love. Every sin is somehow a failure to love God as God and a failure to love our fellow brothers and sisters, other humans, in the way that God has called us to love them. Uh, The fall brings in this failure to love. So you think of just instead of loving God as we ought to, we often run from his love, like the first sin. We run and hide and we feel guilt and shame and we don't approach him to receive his love or to give back the kind of love that we were designed to because sin has entered the picture. And then you just think of all the different kinds of sins, categories of sin, but then specific sins that just wreck the way we love each other. And you could have, I mean, pride brings contention. Selfishness, just self-interest. I want what I want, and that makes it harder to love you. Okay? Then you have actual conflict starts happening, and we find a million reasons to excuse that conflict and say, well, some of you may even say, like, I hate this other person, or I despise this group of people or category of people, or I look down on them. I think of them as lesser than me. And so that's fall. We find it very difficult to love God and to love others as we ought. Then the third act of this play, which is redemption, is this idea that God sent his son, Jesus, to manifest his love through the salvation of sinners. And I'll dig into that a little bit more because when I come to the question of like, what does love have to do with Advent? We're really going to go into this point. But the big idea for just a moment is instead of writing us all off when we sin, when we fail to love him and we fail to love the other creatures that are made in his image, humanity, when we fail to love as we ought, God doesn't just say, I'm done with you. I'm going to start over with someone else. God's love is an initiating love. God's love is a pursuing love. God's love is a, I will plan something for you to fix you, to, to, to redeem you, to solve this problem of hatred and selfishness. And we'll talk about that in Jesus in just a moment. Then the final act of this four-act play is this final restoration that I mentioned, the idea that those who love God, those who believe in Jesus Christ, will love him and will experience his perfect face-to-face love forever without the interruptions of our own sin and selfishness and pride or the sin and selfishness of pride of others. We'll love him face-to-face for eternity. So as I said, what's love got to do specifically with Advent? Why do we come to this fourth week, light a fourth candle and say love is such a critically core component of what we're thinking about when we look back to Jesus coming, and when we look forward to Jesus coming again, what's love got to do with Advent? I just briefly retraced the biblical narrative for you because I wanted you to notice something remarkable, and that is even long before God sent his son Jesus into the world, he was already beginning to do things to demonstrate his heart of reconciliation. And the idea of reconciliation is we, we were, in a sense, consiled to God. We, we were in right relationship with God back in the Garden of Eden. But then sin came and broke that, and now we need a re-version of that. We need to be put back together. We need to be made right with God. And even before Jesus comes, God is already reaching out 
early in the story to demonstrate his heart to reconcile heaven and earth or a holy, loving God with sinful, broken people. If you don't know, sin and the curse happened in Genesis 3. So you only get three chapters into the entire Bible and sin has already entered the picture. The curse of sin, the brokenness, the pain and childbearing, the futility of work, all of that stuff is Genesis 3. And it immediately gets much worse because by, by Genesis 6-5, so three chapters later we're reading this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's stacking a lot of superlatives on top of each other. It was like all the time everybody was doing this continually in a really, really bad way. And that brings the Noahic flood, if you know what that's about. But get this, just six chapters later, so Genesis 12, God is again reaching out to humanity. Specifically, he's reaching out to what to us would be a random pagan man living in what was ancient Sumeria. It's called Ur of the Chaldees back then. A man by the name of Abram. And he says something like this, Abram, I'm choosing you. Based on nothing I see in you, but just based on who I am, I'm choosing you to be the father of many nations, and I want to bless you, and I want to bless all the families of the earth, ultimately, through you and through your offspring. So if you don't know, Abram literally becomes the father of the Jewish people. He's the first Hebrew. He's the first Israelite. There's the kid's song, like, Father Abraham. That's, that's where that comes from, is he did have many sons. And those sons had many sons. And for generations, these are the covenant people of God, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And if you're going back to Genesis 12, and it's just a stark thing if you just pop in at Genesis 12. And God comes to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees and just says, Abram, get up and move over here. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you these promises. And if you're like, why? Why him? The Bible's simple answer is because God loved him. And an element of God's love is grace or unmerited favor. It's something you didn't earn. He just loves because that's the essence of who God is. And a key word, if you want to understand the Bible, is the word covenant. Covenant. It starts in the Garden of Eden, and it doesn't explicitly say this, but there's this Edenic covenant, the covenant of Eden. Um, There's a Noahic covenant, and you all know, like every time you see a rainbow, you may think at least tangentially, like somehow that's connected with Noah. That's, that's a covenant of, I will never again destroy the world by flood, no matter how bad it gets. Well, we're up now to the point of this Abrahamic covenant, a covenant with Abraham. And I want you to think of a, a, a covenant like this. A contract, you may say, we agree two parties or maybe more than two parties agree to certain legal terms. It's like, I'll do this and you do this. And sometimes there are conditions like, I'll do this so long as you do this. Or I'll do this if and when you do this. Sometimes contracts can be relatively unconditional. But I want you to think of a covenant is not just a contract, a legal agreement. It's more of like a sacred promise. It is a, an absolute commitment, an unconditional thing. And, and God is making this promise to Abram and just saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And through your offspring, I will bless all the families of the earth. And there's a really cool detail there in Genesis, I think it's 15, where back in the day, to agree to a covenant, these two parties would do what's called cutting a covenant. 
They wouldn't, they wouldn't just sign on the dotted line, but they literally called it cutting a covenant. And what they would do is take an animal or animals, and they would, they would sacrifice the animal, like a cow, and they would cut it in pieces and make two piles of pieces. Here's part of the cow over here. Here's part of the cow over here. And the two parties would walk between the pieces of animal together. That was called cutting a covenant. What they're doing is they're basically saying, let this be done to me if I break my covenant with you. Let me be dismembered if I break my covenant with you. Now, when we come to the Abrahamic covenant and God's making these promises, it says a very heavy and deep sleep falls on Abraham. He's out cold and God comes in the form of this flaming torch and the flaming torch goes alone through the pieces. And God is saying, I make an unconditional commitment to you and my people because I love you. I will come and I will bless all the peoples of the earth through you. And Abram, there's really nothing for you to do because when I made this covenant with you, you were sound asleep. And again, it's a picture of grace. Of like, there's nothing you did to earn it. There's nothing you do to make my part come true. I'm just doing this because I love you. Now, if I quickly fast forward and summarize, basically the Old Testament, you may already know this, but generation after generation of God's covenant people, people that had these promises, are like, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to do our own thing. And they rebel. And after generations and generations and generations rebel, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, which, by the way, God told Abram that was going to happen before. You can read the Genesis story. And then God comes and rescues them miraculously. So he raises up Moses and says, go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and just say, let my people go. You know, and there's that whole story of the plagues and all that. And finally, the Pharaoh says, get out. You can go. And God's leading them across the desert. God's giving them the law at Mount Sinai. He's giving them the Mosaic covenant now. Again, a sacred promise to be for his people and to love his people. And later on, before they enter the promised land, there's this second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. That's literally what it means, Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 10, we read this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And this is going to knock him down a couple notches before he kind of builds them back up again. It's like, because you, you think you're awesome. You think like, yeah, because we're the Israelites, because we're, we're just really rad and we got it together and we're holy and we're, he's like, Mm. He says, it, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is this, because the Lord loves you, and he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And you hear that covenantal language. You hear that language of steadfast love. And then immediately, God's people disobey again. And you have the period of the judges. And it just goes on and on. And then he raises up a decent king. And they're like, yes, we all repent. And then they go right back and they start sending their brains out again. And by the, by the end of the Old Testament is my point generations of believers that have been this faithful remnant, this small portion of the people of Israel, have cried out to God for relief. 
And they're like, God, we get it. We are, as a whole, a rebellious people. We do not keep your covenants. We don't obey your law. We don't worship you as God alone. But we believe, based on your promise to us, that one day you're going to do something. So this is the first thing that Advent has to do with God's love. The Old Testament people of God were looking forward to a manifestation of God's rescuing love. And they understand, based on God's covenants with all these patriarchs, God has obligated himself to do something for us to rescue us, to redeem us. Now, do we know exactly who that is? No. Do we know when that's going to happen? No. But we're crying out to God, please send this deliverer. They called him the Messiah, the anointed one. And I had us read the words of Micah earlier this morning. You may, may still be turned there. Micah was a prophet of God in the 700s B.C. So this is the period of time that the Assyrian kingdom is coming and attacking the northern kingdom of ten tribes of Israel. And they're laying waste to northern Israel. And what Micah is praying in this text that we read this morning is, God, I'm praying that true to your covenant, you said you would judge us. You said you would punish us and afflict us if we rebelled, and that's what you're doing. I see that, but what is my hope? My hope is that you will ultimately keep your promise to love us. And let me read it with you again, Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And you hear again that covenantal language. You hear again the language of steadfast love. Why do we believe, looking forward before the Messiah comes, that you will do this rescuing thing? Because you said you would. And we're trusting you to do that. By the way, I could read almost the same words from Isaiah, Hosea, Joel. I mean, over three or four hundred years of Israel's history, there are prophets of God popping in saying almost exactly the same thing. They're saying, we are being punished because we have broken your covenant, but you are still God and you are still faithful and you still love your remnant and you will come one day to make everything right. Um, but here's what's amazing to me about Advent, amongst many things, okay? When God chose to rescue his people in love, he didn't just send another prophet like Micah or like Joel or like Hosea, who talked all about the unfaithfulness of this wife who goes away and commits all kinds of acts of sin with other men, but there's this redeeming love that pursues and says, no, you're mine and I'm taking you back and I'm loving you to the greatest possible extent. God doesn't just send another prophet. When God decides to rescue his people from their brokenness, God himself came. And that's the spirit of Advent. And, and point two is not just this, this Old Testament people looking forward to a day when God would come in rescuing love. Point two is Jesus came as the personal and perfect embodiment of God's love. I mean, some of the most famous verses in the Bible that probably many of you have committed to memory, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why does God himself come? And it's John 3.16. It's the poster in the back of the end zone. You'll see this afternoon if you happen to watch a football game. It's, it's for God so loved the world that he gave the world his son, his only eternal perfect son. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says a little differently. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And don't get lost in that. Propitiation is like one of those big $100 theological words. It means the means of forgiveness. God, how do we know God's love? How do we experience God's love? And he says, we, we experience it in this. I sent my son to be the means of forgiveness for everything wrong you've done so that we can be reconciled, we can be harmonized, we can be united again. By the way, I love this. In this, the love of God was made manifest. And I think of it this way. You all, if you're far enough along in your education or looking back on a former education years ago, you know, you had these two kinds of learning that you did. One was like a, a book learning or a lecture. So you're either listening to information from a professor or you're reading that same kind of information from a book. And that, that's a great way to learn, right? I'm, I'm not disputing that. There's another way you learn, and it's called going into the lab. And I, I always loved science because science had lab, and we had lab days, and we had lab coats, and we had lab glasses, and it was just way more awesome than just reading something in a book. And so you've been doing something for, you know, maybe a number of weeks in chemistry class, and you've been learning about, you know, thermite reactions. And you're like, that's interesting that when you combine these things, there's an intense heat. And then you get to go in the lab, and it's like, oh, you're combining the two things, and then you're putting the catalyst in there, and all of a sudden the, the desk is on fire, and it's awesome. And you're experiencing what previously you just read about. The word manifest here is like that. It's like the lab. And that's what I want you to understand is God is like, the, the way you're going to know love is I'm not just going to send another prophet or another book of the Bible for you to read more information or another story about God, as valuable as that could be. He's like, I'm going to put you in the lab with, with the coat and with the glasses, and he's going to come, and you're going to interact with him, and it's going to be hands-on, and he's going to be hands-on with you. And that legacy that he leaves and the reason he came is all going to show you, it's going to demonstrate to you my great love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows, or the word there is demonstrates. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or do you know, Jesus himself puts it like this in John 15.13, talking to his disciples. He says, greater love has no one than this than that someone lay down his life for his friends. How do I know that someone loves me? Because of their willingness to lay down their life and say, my life for yours. I've used this illustration with a few of you before, but you know, if, if we're just out this next summer on Grand Lake or something and we're water skiing with our kids or pulling them in a tube, and I'm like, hey kids, check this out. I want you to see how much your dad loves you. And I just throw myself in the water and splash around until I eventually run out of energy and drown, I think they'd be like, so mom, tell us. <laughs> I mean, we were nine and 10, but what, what was that all about? Like, I don't, I don't get it. 
And my point is, it, it doesn't prove anything unless we were actually in danger. So if you flip it around and one of my children is in trouble and they are clearly not able to, like, to grab a rope and help themselves and I go in and in the process of getting them safely back on the boat, if something happens to me and I do drown, they look back on that and it was like, he was literally willing to give his life for mine. And if, if the Jesus coming thing is just a big charade and it's like, well, you were fine on your own or there was another way you could be saved, but I just decided to do this to you, you'd be like, well, that's, that's just weird. That's nonsensical. That doesn't prove love. But the whole point is we were separated from God by our sin. We, there, was, there was hostility there. There was judgment there. There was death there. And by his coming and giving of himself, he removes that hostility. He pays for the judgment. He overcomes death. And so we can look to the first advent of Jesus and always know that is the manifestation of God's love. That is the lab work of God's love where we didn't just read about it. We got to experience it. Lastly, I want us to look forward because there are two advents. There are two comings. And so thirdly, because Jesus is coming again, we have the promise of eternal life in the presence of love, capital L, okay? One of many texts. So I love John's prologue to the book of Revelation. So, and I've had a couple of you like, could you please preach through Revelation? I'm like, no, because I don't know what the bulls are and the, the horses and the colors and the, this stuff yet. So we're working on it, okay? But I know what the prologue means. So his, his introduction, he says this, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. And I, let me get the wailing part out of the way first. He's saying like certain people will wail, they will mourn because he's talking about the people who rejected him and they realize when he comes in power, it's too late for them because they rejected him. They don't believe in him. They didn't accept grace. Or love. They said, I want to be my own God. I want to do things my own way. And say, when, when they see him, they will wail because they will, they will see him and they will realize he's king. He's king forever. But, but don't miss the thrust of this prologue that for all these others who said, yes, you paid for my sins by your blood and you've come to redeem your people, to take them home, to restore them perfectly, to enjoy this ideal forever love with God face to face. So Jesus is coming again in love. Now I want to close with this as I have each week here and, and Richard, the week he took, did so well at this as well of just finally, how do you live in light of this Advent love? In other words, just a couple practical things of, okay, I'm looking back and I'm seeing how, you know, before the first coming, old covenant people were looking forward to if you love us, if there's a covenant with us and you keep your promises and you're faithful, you will redeem us somehow. And then Jesus comes and says, by my blood, by my 
body poured out and broken for you. There is redemption. You can come home. And now we are in this in-between time, looking back to that, but also looking forward to a coming again. And when he comes again, we'll be forever with him, those of you who hope in him. And it'll be a better, greater, deeper experience of love, like the lab love, not just the theoretical abstract love than we could ever imagine. So what do we do with this? I read 1 John 4 a couple verses earlier. I want to I bracket that now and let you know what, what verse comes right before what I read and what verse comes right after. So 1 John 4, starting in verse 7 this time, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Again, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So three things I think you can do with this. Number one, identify love defeaters in your life. And I mean, what hinders you from loving God in response to his love? And what hinders you from loving the people around you that God has put in your life? And just a moment with each of those. First of all, what hinders you from receiving the love of God and enjoying it? First and foremost. Because if you're receiving his love and you're enjoying his love, that love is a transforming love. You become a different person in the touch of that love. I always remember this, this old Japanese story about a prostitute that a young boy, I think, it was like, I think they knew each other as teens, would see this girl that he loved as a teenager just be taken night after night after night after night and just be abused by men, used by men, manipulated by men, paid a little bit of money by men just to keep herself alive. And one night he comes and you know, he's in disguise and he pays her fee and he takes her to this hotel room and just says, sleep, just sleep, just get a good night's rest. I'm not going to touch you. Nothing's going to, you're safe. See, there's this, this different kind of love that God has come to us with, not a manipulative love, not a love that twists something and just kind of perverts something somehow, not a love that's like, well, I'll love you if I can get this from you. It's just a self-giving love. You're like, I'll, I'll pay your fee through, through my life, blood, so that you can be liberated from that life of manipulation and control and domination and truly be free and truly know what love is. What hinders you from experiencing that? I think there's a busyness sometimes, just, just the reality of our world and these little devices where it's just like, I, I'm just... I just always have something going on that I never slow down and just hit pause to enjoy the love of Christ. Or maybe there's this kind of thing that I, I see in my own life, which is why I'm sharing it with you, and I think it's fairly common, where the present experiences of your life are more real to you. The pain of what you're going through is more real to you right now than the love of God, which feels super abstract sometimes. I mean, do you ever find yourself like praying or just even thinking something like this, God, if, if you love me, then why is this happening to me? And I think what that is, is kind of a, a spiritual nearsightedness or a myopia, 
where you see the things that are right here and you see them with tremendous clarity, but as you start looking beyond them to what else is true in my life, it's, it's fuzzy. It's, it, again, it's an abstraction. You kind of get this idea of like, oh, sure, God loves me, but, but this is what I see, this is what I experience. And maybe that spiritual nearsightedness is preventing you from experiencing the love of Christ for you. There could be other things. I just want you to identify them. What's defeating you enjoying the love of God and loving him in return? What hinders you from loving others? And I ran through some of these earlier when I was talking about the fall, but just apathy, pride, selfishness, resentment, contempt, anger, self-protectionism. Like, I've been hurt before. I don't want to be hurt again. Some of you experience that. Like, you're not, you're not giving love freely because you're like, I, I've done that before, and it, and it always ended up costing me. It hurt. I think of the kind of barricade to love that Miroslav Volf talked about in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, where he says, we end up having these natural enemies in life where we make two categories. We put ourselves in the category of proud innocence. Like, I just know that I'm better than these other people. And we put the enemy in this category of monstrous inhumanity, he calls it. And the reason why we can defend the horrible things that we're saying about them and doing to them, whether individually or as people groups, even as nations, the reason we defend all this hatred is we're like, well, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm proud. I, like, I would never be guilty of that kind of stuff. They are monstrously inhuman. Maybe that's you. Maybe you see a little, a little bit of that going on in your own life or you're part of a group that views like, those are the bad people over there doing the bad things. It's okay to hate them because we're different. We're better. So after you've identified those love defeaters, then a second practical thing, rehearse the personal and practical nature of God's steadfast love. And I told you before that so often the, the love of God, it's like the peace of God, the joy. It's like, don't let it stay an abstraction where you're just like, I don't know, it's a fuzzy thing out there and I guess I'm good with that. It's like, no, look at how personal the love of Jesus is. Look at how practical the love of Jesus is. Again, to demonstrate his love, he doesn't give you a book or a lecture or a course or a download. He comes as a baby in a manger, helpless, taking on human flesh to experience all the pain that you experience and then some because at the end of his very short life, he ends up taking my sin, your sin, the sin of the world on himself and saying, this is love, that I would be the means of forgiveness, that I would pay. That's very personal. It's very practical. You know, if you ask Jesus' friends, how do you know that Jesus loves people? I don't think they would be like, well... You know, when I researched the Hebrew words for love, it just seems like, no, they'd be like, oh my goodness, did you see what he, like he, he went to this woman at this well, a Samaritan woman, like this is crazy. And he just like starts talking to her and she, she feels this touch from his kindness and his compassion and she's like, I, I got to go tell everybody I found the Messiah. And then he turns to this leper over here and you can't touch lepers because you could get leprosy and you're... You're spiritually unclean if you do. But he just like touches them. He just makes them whole. And they would go one story after another after another, just saying like, do you see how gritty, how practical, how real world the love of Jesus is? And that's what I'm saying we've got to do. Don't let it just be this idea out there of like, yeah, the love of Jesus, but be like, rehearse, preach the gospel to yourself. 
Think about all the ways God has loved you. And then finally, find tangible, practical ways to manifest the love of God to others. You know, in amongst all the love languages, like I've heard people say, I love you, and then just be very terrible and abusive. People say things all the time. And then their life looks so different. And I love these languages of love that are just like, I'm not, I'm not even going to say anything. I just want to do things that show you I was thinking about you, that I care about you, that there's an intentionality about you. That kind of tangible, practical love requires proximity. You have to be in the neighborhood, so to speak. And I've, I've even read, I think it was, maybe it was the Message Bible, um, which is like God became man and moved into the neighborhood. That's how they translated it. It's not the best translation, but you get the idea. It's like, how am I going to love you if I don't move into the neighborhood? How can I claim to love you from afar when our lives don't touch each other? And I just want to brag on you and not even save this for announcements. Like the things that you did yesterday with, I don't know, a dozen or more of you here helping 400 unhoused people, feeding them, sitting down at tables with them. I saw people praying over people, like hands-on people, washing hands, washing feet, giving haircuts, just touch after touch after touch. It's tangible. It's practical. It's gritty. It's real world. It's hard sometimes. But you're not like, oh, yeah, yeah, we care about people. You're moving in the neighborhood and saying, like, and I'm going to love you with these practical ways of how do you know the love of Jesus? It's through the touch of someone who loves Jesus very often. Brea from you prep, she's like, I wish everyone from your church could have been here today. It was the parents picking up the toys and the, and the clothes and all that stuff for their kids. She's like, parents like falling on the ground in tears of like, there was going to be no Christmas for my family, but because people who don't even know us cared about these kids, now they have something. Okay, and I'm, and I'm bragging you because I'm saying that's exactly the kind of thing that tangible, practical love looks like. Our world needs generosity. Our world needs sacrifice. Yeah, to, to love other people, you're not going to have all your resources to just use for you. And that's part of the fun thing about shopping for these other kids, like taking our boys to Target and being like, okay, you got to find things an 8-year-old boy would love. And they're 9- and 10-year-old boys. And they're just like going through and they were like, he would love this and he would love this and he would love. And there was zero complaining. And I was like, that was a God moment, okay? <laughs> they, 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 they were never like, what about stuff for me? Like, if you're spending all this money on these other kids that we don't even know, like, what about me? They were just like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. Like, we, if I were eight, which I just was, like, I, I would want both sizes of soccer balls. Okay, we'll get both soccer balls. All right, that's fine, you know? And, and the more you try to love people like that and you see the, the generosity flowing out of you and the sacrifice flowing out of you and the faithfulness and the commitment and the covenant to, to people that are sometimes hard to live with, the more you're going to realize, like, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. I need your love as a fruit of your spirit flowing into me and through me to really love other people. And God will show up that way in your life. If you just sit at home being stingy, how, how do you want the love of God to be manifested through you, honestly? But if you're giving and sacrificing and generous and tangible and practical and real world, that's how God's kingdom comes and his will is done and his love is expressed in Denver as in heaven.